when the English Civil War broke out in the 1640s, the tensions had been rising between King Charles on the one hand and the English Parliament on the other hand. And one of the early battles in the 1640s centered on the conduct of a man named Thomas Wentworth, known as the Earl of Strafford. Wentworth had served as the Lord Deputy of Ireland under Charles I from 1632 to 1640. He had been accused of treason by the Parliament. In May of 1641, a bill of attainder was passed against Wentworth, which condemned him to death by vote of Parliament, but required the signature of the king to go into effect. And so King Charles was placed on the horns of the dilemma. On the one hand, he regarded Wentworth as a loyal servant of his administration. He himself was not in good conscience convinced of the truth of these accusations of treason, and he had personally assured Wentworth that the things of which he was being accused would not end in his death. But on the other hand, the public opinion against Wentworth was strong, and if Charles refused to sign the bill, the public peace could have been greatly threatened, and public opinion incensed against him as the king, and therefore the dial pushed even further one or more notches toward civil war and so on. And under the circumstances, Wentworth understood, and he himself wrote to the king this. He said, I do humbly beseech you for the preventing of such massacres as may happen by your refusal to pass the bill. In other words, you need to sign off on this or things are going to get really bad for you as the king. The king sought counsel from some of the bishops. Some of the, uh, some of the bishops were very adamant, hey, if you are not convinced in your conscience of his guilt, there's no way you can sign this. One of the bishops, apparently, at least one, said that a distinction could be made between the king's private conscience, which believed that Wentworth was innocent, and his, his public conscience, going along with the vote that had been passed by Parliament. And ultimately... The king complied. He signed the bill, handing over to his death a man whom he regarded as innocent, all for the sake of political expedience. Now, we're all familiar with this idea, right, the phrase of throwing someone under the bus. The person, for some reason, is viewed as a liability. They get tossed to the wolves, denounced, tossed under the bus, and so on. Those who have the power and the ability to put a stop to whatever bad thing might be coming to that person, do nothing, or if they do anything, they actually are the ones who contribute to throwing the person under the bus. Now, this is bad enough when someone's reputation or someone's career is on the line. It's much worse when someone's life is on the line, when the innocent is judged as guilty and killed simply for the sake of political expedience. This is the very thing that we have happening in our text this morning. In John chapter 11, as we look to verses 45 through 57, we see that principle is sacrificed for the sake of expedience. But the case in our text is infinitely more egregious than any other. The situation in our text is that of the plot to judicially murder the Son of God. So please turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 11, verses, uh, we'll begin in verse 45 and we'll read down through the end of the chapter Verse 57, John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to Mary and saw what he had done 
believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Now as we look to this text of scripture this morning and consider it, we'll do so under, under two main headings. First of all, don't be unprincipled. Don't be unprincipled. And secondly, the wrath of man will praise God. The wrath of man will praise God. So the context here is obviously the situation on the ground in Judea after the resurrection of Lazarus. We saw that last week, how Jesus had proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life, and raised Lazarus from the grave. And what John reports to us here is how things kind of fell out after Jesus had raised Lazarus. We find in verses 45 and 46 that John reports, as he often does, the division of opinion that existed among the Jews in regard to how they viewed the ministry of Jesus. Some saw how Jesus had raised Lazarus, and they believed in Jesus, at least to a certain extent. Now, whether these mentioned in verse 45 had true and genuine and persevering faith is not exactly clear, but their opinion was certainly very much different from the others, very much different from those of whom we are told in verse 46. Now, this latter group in verse 46 went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And we can safely infer that these in verse 46 did not go to the Pharisees with the intention of persuading them to believe in Jesus. Hey, we saw this. This is amazing. We think Jesus is the Messiah. You should believe in him too. That was, that was not the message they were taking. Rather, they were going to tell them what Jesus had done so that the Pharisees in turn could do something about Jesus to do something about what they viewed as their Jesus problem. And this is exactly what they begin to do. We see in verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. This is what the Pharisees did as a result of those who had come to them. 
And the early sentiments expressed in this council are those described in verses 47 and 48. They say, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and, come and take away both our place and our nation. Now this is really quite remarkable what they, what they say here. On the one hand, it's a statement of discontentment with their own actions. They recognize that all of the accusations they have brought against Jesus to this point and whatever else they had done to this point has been ineffective at countering Jesus' ministry. They'd been grumbling about Jesus for a long time, but Jesus just keeps on performing miracles. People keep believing in him. Jesus keeps on teaching. And these people had been powerless to stop Jesus. They'd been powerless to prevent other people from believing in him. And notice also in their words that there is an amazing admission on the part of these Pharisees. They say, for this man is performing many signs. They acknowledged the reality of what Jesus was doing. They could not deny it. Jesus was performing miracles. They knew it, but still they refused to believe. All that they could think about was simply their own safety, their own security, and... Uh, and so on. And they have the sense that if Jesus continues on as he has, then this is going to be a threat to them. Jesus will continue to get followers. This movement will eventually fall under the suspicion of Rome. They'll get nervous about this messianic figure. They will take action, and that action would be the exile of the Jewish people from the land yet again, perhaps the confiscation of or the destruction of the temple. Their nation and their religion as they knew it would be practically altered so as to be beyond recognition. The tabernacle, of course, in the Old Testament, followed by the temple, had been the focal point of the Jewish religion since the days of Moses. There had been some interruptions along the way, certainly, when it was destroyed by the Babylonians or when it had been commandeered for idolatrous worship in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. But the reason why those incidents were so horrific to the Jewish mind was because... When the temple is destroyed or when it's hijacked for idolatrous worship, that means, therefore, that the prescribed worship of God as laid down in the law is impossible. And these men don't want to live through a repeat of one of those historical events. These words in verses 47 and 48 are the words of frustrated men who cannot respond effectively to someone that they view as a threat. But then Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up in verses 49 and 50. He says, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, in short, Caiaphas pierces through the fog with clear-sighted and a cutthroat solution to their little political problem. The picture seems to be that those early voices up in 47 and 48 are kind of wringing their hands like, oh, what are we doing? What can we do? Jesus keeps performing miracles. People are still going out to him. We can't put a stop to this. The Romans are going to come. This is going to be bad. And they're looking at their circumstances almost with a sense of hopelessness. And then it's like Caiaphas steps up and says, hey, you fools don't know anything. Be quiet. There's a solution about which you have not yet thought. You've not considered that it's expedient, helpful, and useful that we can get one man to die for the people so that our whole nation doesn't have to perish in the way that you have just described. If we can just kill Jesus, we can put a stop to all of this. It's 
It's better to have one man die than to have this whole string of consequences that would follow if Jesus were to keep on doing what he's doing. And so Caiaphas shows his colors here, right? In uh, some terms, he's Machiavellian. He's someone who's cunning, scheming, unscrupulous. As Chrysostom in the ancient church put it, what the others made a matter of doubt and put forth by way of deliberation, this man cried aloud, shamelessly, openly, audaciously. This man is someone who acts on the premise that the end justifies the means. If the purpose is good, if the goal is good, we'll do whatever it takes to get there. It doesn't matter what. Such was the thinking of Caiaphas, and his voice carried the day in the council, as we find in verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, of course, the rest of the chapter shows Jesus' departure to this city called Ephraim, verse 54, and how, as a result of this council, Jesus is no longer walking publicly among the Jews. And then in verses 55 through 57, we see the scene in Jerusalem leading up to the Passover. Many of the Jews had gone up early to purify themselves, and Jesus is the talk of the town. They're wondering if he's coming up to the feasts. Chief priests and Pharisees had already made their orders public that if anybody knows the whereabouts, they should let them know so that Jesus can be arrested. This plan of Caiaphas, therefore, which was approved by the council, is thus made public. And Jesus was a wanted man in Jerusalem. Any tips to his whereabouts would be greatly appreciated by the powers that be. Now, we should let this history of Caiaphas and the council serve as a warning to us. This should serve as a warning to us against what we might call unprincipled pragmatism. That was what was going on here. There was a fear that the members of this council shared, a fear of a potential threat to their nation, their way of life. Many of them, I'm sure, faced a fear of a threat to their personal livelihood. They feared that their nation, their temple would be taken away, that many people would die if the Romans got fed up with Jesus or when they began to view Jesus as a threat. And so they decided to do the best thing that they could do under the circumstances. That is, the best thing as far as they were concerned in an ungodly way. And that best thing that they could think of was to kill the man who posed the threat, though he had not been so much as put on trial, let alone condemned. This was the expedient thing to do as far as they were concerned. As we find in verse 53, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, this is unprincipled pragmatism at its worst. And though you and I uh, could not do the same thing that they planned to do, even if we wanted to, right? We can't, can't kill Jesus. Jesus is no longer on earth. He died once and rose again, never to die again. We couldn't kill Jesus if we wanted to. But nevertheless, unprincipled pragmatism hasn't gone away, has it? That still poses a temptation to us today. How so? Well, we are too often tempted to be pragmatic, to do what works, tempted to get the job done, to achieve the goal, regardless of the cost, regardless of what we have to do to achieve the goal or get the job done. We are tempted sometimes to leave godly principles at the door and just do what needs to be done. We can think that the end justifies the means, that if the goal is good, it doesn't matter 
what path or road you take to get there as long as, as long as you can ultimately get there. And so, for instance, I know someone who was working in emergency services for a city in another state, and this event happened decades ago. I don't know what his, his job title was, but he worked somewhere in the, the area of administration in charge of the city ambulances and such, and the city emergency services asked this man to provide some, some false data so that they could uh, make some false claims and, and make some more money. He said that he was a Christian, and he would not do that. They said, do it or get fired. So what do you do if you're in that situation and your only goal is to keep the job, support the family, climb the ladder, and so on? You might be able to come up with some really slick reasoning as to why it's actually okay to lie. Provide the false data they want and move on with your life. That's unprincipled pragmatism. Now, by God's grace, this man that I know did not do that. He chose to quit his job because he was unwilling to play the game and lie. Things like that happen sometimes. And you need to decide now that you're not going to do that. You're not going to play the game. Resolve now that by the grace of God, you're going to lay aside falsehood. Resolve now by the grace of God that you're not going to play the games of dishonesty in order to keep your job or climb the company ladder. You have to trust that God will take care of you if you have to quit or get fired because you're unwilling to sin. We live in times where corporations put pressure on employees to support ungodly things or who put pressure on employees to refrain from speaking out in regard to the truth. And this is not just liberal Fortune 500 companies who are doing this. So, for instance, just a, a couple of months ago, uh, Concordia University in Miquon, Wisconsin, suspended one of their professors and locked him out of his email and he couldn't teach his classes and so on. And Concordia University is part of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and ostensibly conservative, confessional Lutheran church body. And what was the crime for which this professor, who was also a pastor, was suspended from teaching? Well, he had wrote an article that was published called Woke Dysphoria at Concordia, in which he had openly criticized the university's board of regents for the criteria that they had set in seeking a new president of the university. Instead of the more progressive-sounding language that was used by the board of regents in their criteria, this pastor professor advocated that the university ought to be seeking as a president some pastor professor who believed in and demonstrated a commitment to scripture and the Lutheran confessions, who had an exceptional record of ministry spiritually and academically in concord with those beliefs, and so on. In other words, he's, he's arguing we need to have criteria for finding a president like we have formerly had for finding a president. That article was published on a Tuesday in February, and by Friday or Saturday he was suspended. And the, the next week, a, a memorandum uh, was sent to him by the administration explaining why he was suspended and that he would be terminated if he didn't do what he was told and informed him that he must recant of the article that he had written. And being a good Lutheran, this professor has said that his position is, unless I am shown on the basis of clear scripture, I cannot and will not recant. <laughs> Examples of, of this sort could, could surely be multiplied. Other relevant examples could surely be given. But you see the point. Pragmatism might dictate that you lie. 
pragmatism might dictate that you just keep your head down and say nothing when institutions are going off the rails. You don't stir the waters, or if you do get in trouble like this professor did, you just try to go along and patch up whatever the problem was. You tell a lie on the paperwork, you recant the article, you march in the pride parade, or, or whatever. But when truth and righteousness are on the line, a Christian can't do that. As Christians, we have to do the right thing, the godly thing, regardless of the consequences. And the people of God have a, a long history of doing just this. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think of Daniel. Think of Jeremiah, and so on. The people of God have a long history of obeying God, even when pragmatic, unprincipled wisdom would dictate otherwise. And not only is this, is this the godly thing to do, if you just, just consider the long game, this kind of pragmatism always ends badly. Just consider the situation here in John chapter 11. Caiaphas and the council took the position that they did because they thought that this was the way to prevent the Romans from coming and taking their place and their nation. How did that work out 40 years down the road? Not too well. In AD 70, the very thing that they were worried about became the reality, despite the fact that they killed Jesus. They both killed Jesus and lost their place and their nation. Indeed, it would not be too much of a stretch to say that those things came upon them because of what they did to Jesus. So we read in our unison reading, Luke 19 this morning, how Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. And he said, The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Didn't recognize the Messiah was here. Or just consider how Jesus ended that uh, parable of the landowner and what the implication of that parable was in Matthew 21. Jesus told that parable about the tenants in the vineyard who, uh, who had beat and mistreated, killed the servants that the owner of the vineyard had sent them. Last of all, the owner sent his son. And they killed the son. Jesus asked in Matthew 21:40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they replied to Jesus by saying, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus replied by saying, Did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. All right, the point is, this kind of pragmatism ends badly. The very thing they dreaded so much came upon them. And pragmatism is not going to work out well for you either. If you're unprincipled in your dealings, you might escape unscathed here in the world for a while. You might escape completely unscathed here in the world. Sometimes the evil doers get off scot-free. But ultimately, God sees and knows, and you're accountable to him. And though you might get off scot-free in this world, you're not going to get off scot-free in the next. Ultimately, you have to stand before God. Don't be unprincipled. And this is not the only thing, though, that we see here in this passage. So we come to our second point now, that the wrath of man will 
praise God. And there is more going on here, John tells us, than simply this high priest coming up with a Machiavellian scheme to take care of the problem that Jesus poses for them. Verses 51 and 52, John tells us that in saying this, Caiaphas was not speaking of himself. Oddly enough, this unscrupulous, unprincipled, murderous man was speaking prophetically. When John says that he did not say this on his own initiative or of himself, but that he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, what John means is that Caiaphas spoke under the influence of the Holy Spirit in what he was saying. The words that he spoke were not from himself, but from God. D.A. Carson put it well when he said, When Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking, even if they were not saying the same things. Caiaphas prophesied. He spoke not of himself. Chrysostom said, He prophesied not knowing what he said, and the grace merely made use of his mouth and touched not his accursed heart. And that, in truth, seems to be what was going on here. By the words he spoke, Caiaphas only meant that Jesus would die for the nation in a political sense, in the sense of keeping them out of trouble with Rome. But his words actually had a deeper meaning, as John tells us. And that meaning was that Jesus would die for the nation, that he would die for the nation in the theological sense. He would die for the nation as a sacrifice for sins. And his death would not only be for the members of the Jewish nation, but his death would be for those who were outside of the nation. In order that, as he says in verse 52, he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And this is actually the same reality that Jesus himself had spoken of back in chapter 10, verse 16, when he said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, as we, as we think about this issue here, there are two big theological implications that we need to consider in light of what John says here about the prophesying of Caiaphas. And the first is that God is in charge of all things, even the wicked actions of wicked men. Asaph said in Psalm 76.10, as we sang together this morning, the wrath of man shall praise you. And those words are true. What are these words of Caiaphas at least as Caiaphas intended them, but a raging and plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. Caiaphas was raging and plotting against the Messiah, whom God the Father had sent into the world. But in saying what he said, he spoke more than he knew. He was speaking in political terms, but he actually prophesied and spoke not of himself, and therefore his words convey theological truth. And indeed, don't we see this kind of thing in Scripture again and again, where evil actors are doing evil things, but the evil things that they are doing is explicitly said to be of the Lord for the Lord's purposes. They were fulfilling the Lord's purposes even though they were choosing to do evil. So for instance, just think of Genesis. Joseph and his brothers, they sold him into slavery because they hated him. But Joseph was able to see at the end of things that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis 50, verse 20. Think of Samson. When Samson wanted to marry the Philistine woman of Timnah, he desired something that he should not desire, right? To marry 
an ungodly woman. He was attempting to do something that he should not have attempted. But yet we're told in Judges 14.4 that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Or just consider the folly of Rehoboam. 1 Kings chapter 12, how he snubbed the advice of the wise counselors who counseled him to lighten up on the people. But he chose rather to follow the advice of the young men who had grown up with him in, uh, in the palace when they counseled him to crack the whip even harder on the people. Rehoboam was clearly making a foolish choice. But yet, we read in 1 Kings twelve fifteen, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish the, his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And what the writer of 1 Kings is getting at there is uh, in reference to the, the word of the Lord that the ten, ten uh, of the tribes of the kingdom would be torn away from the house of David because of the sins of Solomon. Rehoboam was being foolish in his actions and was actively doing something that made him lose the bulk of his kingdom. But it was of the Lord. This was, this was the Lord's purpose. We see the same kind of things... Uh, kind of thing in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, as the apostles are looking back to the, the crucifixion of Christ and pouring out their hearts in prayer. They said, For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The Jews, the Gentiles, Herod, Pontius Pilate, all of them were collaborating together on an ungodly thing, killing the Christ, but yet they were doing ultimately what the Lord's hand and purpose had predestined to occur. In all of these things that we've considered here, the people are acting in ungodly ways and doing what they did. They were doing what they wanted to do, and thus they're in that way accountable and responsible for their actions. No one was twisting their arm into sinning. What they intended for evil, though, the Lord meant for good, because in all of them, the Lord was working out his intended purposes and plans. The wrath of man praises God. Despite all of the anger and vitriol which the Lord's enemies have towards him and have towards what is good and right and godly, despite all of the hatred that they have for God's purposes, nevertheless, the Lord is still in charge. He is using everyone and all things to bring about his purposes and plans. The Lord had also used an ungodly man to speak the truth prophetically even prior to Caiaphas. That's why we read Numbers chapter 24 for our Old Testament reading. That prophet's name was Balaam. And Balaam truly prophesied about the nation of Israel. He said true things in his prophecy about God. He's not a godly man. Balaam gave counsel to the Midianites to lead the Israelites into immorality, and thus ultimately he died when the Israelites fought against the Midianites, as we find in Numbers chapter 31. Scripture is clear that the Lord is sovereign and in charge even over the words and actions of wicked men. He's not responsible for their sin. They're responsible and accountable for what they do. But the Lord is sovereign over it. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, if you've repented and believed the gospel, 
I want you to be comforted and encouraged by the sovereignty of God that is so clearly on display here, even in these raging and rebellious words of Caiaphas. And this is particularly relevant for us today, I think, because we live in times of great agitation, times in which ungodly ideologies are running rampant in society and even seeking to infiltrate the church and sometimes do infiltrate the church. We look in the culture and things look pretty dark. And sometimes when we take a glimpse into the universal church, things look pretty disturbing there as well. B.B. Warfield could say a hundred years ago that men seem to have broken away from the government of conscience and even from the guidance of common instincts of humanity. How much more could we say the same today? Right? We'd like to see the churches full. We'd like to see the church boldly proclaiming the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We would like to see churches boldly proclaiming the law of God, proclaiming what God requires of us, proclaiming the law in such a way that it brings conviction of sin and leads us like a schoolmaster to Christ, showing us our sin, showing us there's no hope for justifying ourselves before God, that we must go to Christ. And we want to see the word of God clearly proclaimed and applied to use the words of an old hymn so that the church would be strong, bold, unified in act and song. We want to see hearts and lives changed by the Holy Spirit. We'd like to see many of our fellow citizens and people around the world to be saved. Wouldn't it be so much better to live in a town where you have a catechism hour at your local library as opposed to having a story hour where they celebrate all kinds of ungodliness and instead are catechizing children in wickedness. Alas, many of these things may be longed for, but few of them we actually see in reality. But brothers and sisters, this is why this truth should be so encouraging to us that the wrath of man praises God because God is still on his throne. He is still sovereign even over the wickedness of man. Just as he was sovereign over the sins of Samson and Rehoboam, the sin of Joseph's brothers, the sin of Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, even now in our day, the wrath of man will still ultimately bring praise to God. Even now in our day, all things are still working together for good to them that love God. And that good is not to give us everything that we had wished for or dreamed for, Rather, they're working together for good so that we might be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Even now, in our day, the Lord is still the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. And so, Christian friend, be, be encouraged, be comforted by this. Even though we see great wickedness in the world, sometimes even infiltrating the church, God is still on his throne and is still reigning and ruling, and his plans and purposes will come about in the end. Now, the second theological implication and much shorter here uh, that we see in light of what John says about the prophesying of Caiaphas is, is simply what is being said about Christ. Caiaphas had in mind a political sacrifice, a sacrifice of expedience just to kind of get this problem to go away. But John tells us the truth of things, that Jesus is going to be a theological sacrifice. Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation not only for the nation of the Jews, but in order to gather all of the children of God who were scattered abroad into one. And indeed, this is what has happened. This prophecy has been fulfilled. This is what is announced to us in the gospel, that Jesus died 
for the nation and for the children of God who were scattered abroad. At that point, they were still the children of the devil. But Jesus died so that they might become the children of God, so that they might pass out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of God. Peter would put it this way in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus' death was for sins as an atoning sacrifice. He took our place. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, taking the punishment that we deserved. Indeed, we find in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ took on our sins in his death so that he might do away with them for all eternity and bring us to God, giving us his righteousness so that we might be justified through Christ for all of eternity. So praise God, this prophecy of Caiaphas has been fulfilled. Jesus has died for sinners and has risen again. And Paul tells us, Romans 5.10, that if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? This is good news for us. Jesus has died for the nation and has died for the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas was truly saying more than he meant to say. And so let's believe this good news. And let us day by day submit ourselves then to the Lord who died for us and rose again. And this is good news for all who believe now. And this is good news for all who will yet repent and believe. And if you have not yet repented and believed, let this be the day for you. Christ has died. Christ has risen. The preaching of the gospel, as it were, is the day of your visitation. Right? If you think back to our New Testament reading, our unison reading from Luke 19, Jesus said that the judgment was going to come upon these people because they did not know the day of their visitation. The day of your visitation is today. You're hearing the gospel. You need to repent. You need to believe on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your control, your majesty, your sovereignty over all things and working out your good plans. We thank you that indeed Jesus did die for the nations and to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. We thank you that this prophecy has indeed been fulfilled and that we are the grateful recipients of Christ's death and resurrection. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up so that we might walk faithfully with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.